So I, I read an article a few years back that um, was, was kind of interesting. It talked about uh, younger generations of people growing up in, uh, in America and really the world, I guess, today, and, and how different life is for them than it was for, for us. Now, by us, I mean those of you who are, let's say, over 40 or something, 35, 40. You know, the good generations of people. Before, <laughs> before I don't know, where, where, where do millennials cut off at? Easton, you're, are you a millennial? Is right in the middle. 89? Graduated high school in 89. Uh, anyway, I, so I read this article, and, and it said, look, if you're, if you're an adult now, and you have kids, you need to understand that, that we have, have no idea the world in which our kids and grandkids are, are, are being raised in or growing up in. Right? They, they, we, if we had a problem, if I needed the answer to a question when I was a kid, I had to go to dad or mom because they're the only ones around. And so I, I had to go to them. Now, they did. I, rem, I remember as a kid, a young kid, being really excited when the, um, the new uh, encyclopedia, encyclopedia book arrived at home. Did any of your parents get the encyclopedia in your... Yeah, okay, a few of you older folks. <laughs> yeah, so the encyclopedia, that was all we had to do, right? You, you didn't, like, I remember turning the TV on, and at a certain time at night, the screen went off. The channel quit. That used to happen. When I was, and today, that's, that's not the case, right? 24-7, everything... Gone are the days when a child would go to their parents to ask questions. Now, if there's a question, what do we do? We Google on our phones, uh, which we hardly use for phones, but we call them that. Anyway, we, we Google everything. So I, um, I got, uh, some of you, will, uh, Kansas people will appreciate this. Uh, my my father-in-law said that I could store the uh, Troy-built horse two tiller. You know what those are? Yeah. The grand pappy of all rototillers out there. So he's like, hey, uh, why don't you just keep this at your house? Um, and I said, okay. So I took it to my house and then it quit working. So, so I, I get out my phone and uh, I watch some YouTube videos and I break that thing all the way down to the gearbox and rebuild it all back. Um, new engine, and uh, it, I didn't have any oil in the gearbox, so that was fixed as well. Uh, and all the seals and all that kind of stuff, and, and, and built it um, back up because there were people on YouTube showing you how, step by step, to do all of those things. And that's really cool. And so the great thing about having all of this information at the tip of our fingers is that we have all of this information at the tip of our fingers. And the bad thing about it is that we have all this information at the tip of our fingers. And so how do we know what's good and what's bad when we're just seeking information? How do we differentiate from the stuff that's good and the stuff that's bad. Now, I don't know if you have tried any of these, but if you are on social media, you probably have come across those videos that are uh, telling you how to do secret things in your vehicle. 
Like if you have this brand or this make or model of vehicle, it has this secret thing that you can do. And so they give you all these instructions about how you turn the key to this on position and then off, on and off. And then you hit this button and this button and you turn the volume up all the way and then you got to do this and this and this. And what happens when you finally turn your car in is that it breaks. It's a complete lie. The whole video was a lie. It's not true. None of it. They tell you how to do things that will break your vehicle. And so then you get all these comments that you read them and they are not pleasant comments <laughs> because this idiot went out and tried it because he had that make and model of vehicle and ended up breaking something and it was not good. And, and then what do you do? Like, how do you tell what's good and, and what's bad? Let me give you another example. We uh, took Trent yesterday to see Lyle Lyle crocodile because we read that to our kids when they were little. So we take Trent to see the movie. We're on our way home. Andrea's sitting in the back seat and she goes, oh, and I'm like, what? What's going on? She said, Loretta Lynn died. So, oh, Loretta. Some of you are like, Loretta Lynn? Loretta, Loretta Lynn? Loretta, the rest of you know Loretta Lynn died. She's like, oh, that's so sad. I'm like, oh yeah, Loretta Lynn died. Okay. And then, and then like a minute later, she goes, wait a minute. This says Loretta Lynn's death is a hoax. I'm like, oh, so she's alive, right? And then another minute later, she goes, wait a minute. <laughs> this site is saying that the hoax about Loretta Lynn dying is a hoax. <laughs> like, I still don't know if Loretta Lynn is dead or alive. I, and, I, and I'm a little afraid to Google it because I don't know if it's going to tell me the truth or not. How do we differentiate? How do we spot a, a, a lie? That's really the question. I think it comes up here. How do we spot a lie? When there's so much information out there, so many places we can go to, to look, and it's not just parents, it's not just your pastor anymore. There's all kinds of places that you can go and get information. Last week, we talked about how Christians can get caught in a trap where we can seem really religious, right? We could do all of the religious things. We can check off all the boxes. And at the same time, we can reject righteousness. So we can be religious and, and not righteous. And, and when those two things don't line up, when they don't match, then that's when hypocrisy is, is really visible, right? We go to church and we talk about religious things and we have a little Jesus sticker on our car, but, but then, um, you know, we're flipping people off when we go down the road and we're talking like and we're sharing those dirty jokes and we're doing all that stuff that everybody else in the world who's not a Christian is doing. And so we can... We can do all the religious things, but then in our life, in our spirit, we can, we can reject the righteous things. And, and if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to choose righteousness, not just religion, right? Not just the, the do's and the don'ts of, of religion. And it seems to me that there are three main signs of bad religion. And so I want to talk about um, some of those right now. The first sign of bad religion is pastors who self-righteously preach against the sin they themselves practice. Now, th this is a, a tough one, right? Be because I'm, I'm that guy. 
uh, and, and I, I get up here on Sunday and we talk about sin and we talk about struggles and we talk about the goal of righteousness and the standard of Jesus. And, and so I, we have to be careful here because we all sin, right? We, we all mess up every week. We're doing things, saying things, thinking things that we know God wouldn't be pleased with. So what I'm talking about um, in, in, in this sign of bad religion is when a pastor excuses his own sin while exposing other people's sin, there's a problem there. Um, I, I actually um, have, have been sitting in church uh, while the pastor in the pulpit, in his three-piece suit, looking the, the part, um, said to the congregation that he did everything right and they did everything wrong. And I don't remember if that's exactly how he said it, but that's what came across. I'm righteous, you are not. I'm doing the right thing, you're doing the wrong thing. I'm going to heaven, you're a little questionable. I'm not really sure about you. Uh, and, and so that becomes a, a problem. Um, because, because we're all in the same, like I'm, I'm not better than anybody else. Um, pastors aren't better than others. We're not less broken than others. Uh, in fact, in, in a lot of cases, we don't even sin less than the average church person. I, we're just called to follow Jesus in front of others who are following Jesus. And, and, and sometimes that, that's the scary place to be in. And, and so um, I really try hard not to come across that way. And so when, when I'm preaching on Sunday, you, I hope you know I'm preaching to myself. You all get to just listen to that. Uh, so I'm struggling with the same things. I'm dealing with the same things. I, I just, I'm doing what I think God has called me to do. And I have to do it in front of other people. And, and that that sometimes is a, is a struggle. And, and so um, the first sign of bad religion is just pastors who get up on stages and they self-righteously preach against the sin they themselves practice and there's no, like they excuse their own things and, and not others' people. The second sign of bad religion is churches who pass judgment on others' sin with no grace. Now, um, this is not about a church holding out truth to a congregation or a, a community. But really what happens is churches kind of hold truth hostage as a means to condemn others, right? Like we, we have the truth. We're the ones who've got it in with God. We're the ones, we know where we're going. And if you're not a part of this church, well, you're not gonna, you're not gonna get there. And I think a lot of churches, may, they probably wouldn't say that. Like, that's probably not printed on their bulletin. But that's how they act, right? Like, if you're a part of this church, you're okay. You're going to heaven. God's going to accept you. But if you don't believe the way we do, if you don't attend the way we do, if you don't do things the way we think you should, you're just not, um, you're not going to make it to heaven. And so um, when a church or a, a pastor makes a blanket statement um, like this one that, that I heard. We, years ago, we had a lady come to church and, and she said that um, 
she had taken her kids to this church and, and they got in the car after church. The kids were at kids' church or whatever. They got in the car afterwards. They were driving home and she said the kids were just really quiet in the back seat and this almost sad. And so she asked them like, what's, what's going on? And one of them started crying and they said, our Sunday school teacher told us that if you have tattoos, you're going to hell. And daddy has tattoos. And so they're like these little kids in the back seat, they're broken because they just, like this, somebody told, uh, like, okay, you know, this is why I have tattoos. If you're going to hell because you got tattoos, I guess I'm with you. So here we go, right? I mean, that's just, that's malarkey. It's, it's bogus. It's not true. It's, it's not real. Don't buy into that. But churches will make those kind of statements, right? If you don't believe the way we do, that's it. You're, you're not going. But, but I look back at Jesus and, and I go, who, who did Jesus hang out? Who did he talk with? Is, is there anybody that Jesus, that came to Jesus for answers that he kind of rejected or rebuffed? Anybody? Not a single sinner. Not a single person with tattoos or uh, a history or uh, a past that, that wouldn't be very Jesus-like. He didn't reject any of those people. But when the religious leaders came, when the elite came, when the self-righteous came, he didn't have much time for them. And so I, I think about that a lot. Like, man, sometimes in churches we can act like those people, more like the people that Jesus rejected than the people that Jesus accepted. All right. Sign of bad religion number three, ignoring parts of the gospel in order to excuse sin. And so there are a lot of preachers and, and, and teachers who are governed more by kind of their geographical location or the political climate of that location than they are by God. And so um, we, we understand like God doesn't change, right? Um, Jesus said not a single pen stroke from the word of God is, is going to be lost. Like all of it is going to come to pass. And so all of, us, all of us must come to the realization that God's truth, God's truth is the truth regardless of your, your truth. I probably should have made that bigger on the little screen here because that's a big one, right? We, we talk a lot about this is my, this is my truth. And yet, if you're a believer in, in Jesus, your truth says doesn't matter a lot. What really matters is, is God's truth. Because <laughs> God's truth is the truth. It doesn't matter what you or I think about it. And, and, and that's a good coffee mug slogan, probably. Maybe we should get that put on a coffee mug. I don't know. But there are a lot of sayings out there that sound good. They make us feel good but they actually do us no good. And we gotta separate those things out. So um, here's our warning. When our desire to be accepted by the culture is greater than our desire to be accepted by the creator, we're in danger of bad religion. If the things that we're saying as, as believers, we're saying them because of the way other people around us are gonna receive them, then, then we're probably in danger of practicing bad religion. So today, we're going to take a look at uh, life during the time of the prophet Jeremiah. 
Uh, Jeremiah was a lot more famous than um, the prophet Amos. He wrote a lot and uh, was around a lot more. Um, But he dealt with some of the same religious struggles. So we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 23 today. We're going to start with verses 9 and 10. Here's what it says. When I think of the prophets, this is uh, Jeremiah speaking. When I think of the prophets, I am shocked and I tremble like someone drunk because of the Lord and his sacred words. And so if you didn't catch it, what he's saying is there's a disconnect between the Lord and his sacred word and the prophets. That's what's causing Jeremiah to to stumble. He's taken aback. He says those unfaithful prophets, they misuse their power and they do it all over the country, like all of them. And so God turned the pasture lands into scorching deserts. So God is paying attention to this disconnect between the religious leaders, what they're doing and saying, and what God is doing and saying. And because there's a disconnect, there's discipline, right? God is going to discipline people for the way that they're behaving. And so Jeremiah hears a word from God that he's to deliver to the people of of Israel. Now that's both the northern tribes, 10 tribes of Israel, and the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, which is just referred to as Judah. Excuse me. Um, and, And so both of these nations, both the northern nation and the southern nation, they had stopped worshiping God and they had started following false idols. Um, and, and the, the people of Judah, they kind of still worshiped God. Like they had the temple, they went there, they, they performed the sacrifices, but they were also worshiping other idols and false gods and, and, and doing things, um, on their own. And so, um, Michael Brown in the Expositor's Bible Commentary says this uh, about Jeremiah. For years now, Jeremiah has heard the lying oracles of the false prophets. He's watched them deceive the masses with their empty words of comfort and assurance. He has witnessed the hypocrisy and sin of their own lives, and he's seen their corruption fill the land. Now, Jeremiah has had this fresh encounter with God. He's received a word of judgment against the religious leaders, and all of this is overwhelming to him. And so he utterly is staggered by what he hears. God's anger burns especially hot against the false prophets because in speaking lies in his name, they misrepresent the Lord himself. And so I'm going to stay here um, for just a moment more. Since Jesus, right? Since Jesus came and lived, died, and, and rose again, we, his followers, have become his priests. And the, the doctrine of, of this is called the priesthood of the saints. And, and what it means is if you um, surrender to Jesus, if you give your life to Jesus, you, you seek to follow him without excuse or condition for the rest of your life, then um, if you're going to follow him, then you become like a priest from the Old Testament, right? You become somebody who is a connector between other people and God. That's part of our purpose in life. If you're a follower of Jesus, your purpose is to help other people find Jesus. You are a priest, and so there's a priesthood of the saints, and, and we're just supposed to, in our um, daily lives, represent Jesus to a non-believing world. 
And so when we act in our daily lives more like Satan than we do the Savior, we're guilty of the same thing as these early prophets Jeremiah was talking about. When, when we go about our daily lives and there's no difference in the way we talk, the way we look, the way we act, the way we think from everybody else in the world, then we're being the kind of priest that Jeremiah was dealing with way back in the Old Testament. And, and it actually um, gets worse, both the sin of the people and the response of God. Look at verse 11. Jeremiah now says, the Lord told me to, to say this. God spoke to me, now I'm telling you. You prophets and priests, these are the guys who are supposed to know. They're supposed to be closest to God. You prophets and priests, you think so little of me, the Lord, that you even sin in my own temple. The priests, and because the priests were doing it, the people were doing it, they have so little regard for God, for his power for, for his purpose, for his holiness and righteousness, that they're breaking the laws of God in the very temple of God. That seems kind of strange, right? Like, uh, like I hear people um, outside of church that go, hey, you know, why don't you come to church with me? And they go, oh, oh man, maybe you've heard this too. Oh, I guess I haven't been in church for so long. If I walked in there, the walls would probably fall in. You know, the place would catch on fire. Like, you don't know the kind of life I've, I've lived. Um, and I'm like, well, you don't know the kind of people that come to real life. Because if that was going to happen, it already happened. <laughs> so, like, like, come on, come on down, right? Um, th now, th remember that... The tabernacle in the Old Testament at Mount Sinai, God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle. And then later, King Solomon built this incredible temple in Jerusalem. In both of those places, when they were dedicated to God, the presence of God in fire and smoke came down and rested on that building and, and filled the building. In fact, in both places, when you read the story, it says that nobody, not even Moses, could enter the tabernacle because the presence of God was so, so hot there. Right? So the tabernacle and the temple were to be like these hot spots of God's presence. The, the Ark of the Covenant was in there and the Holy of, of Holies. And the Ark of the Covenant was the physical presence of God among his people. And so this is this incredible idea that God's presence is there among the people in the center of the camp or in the center of the nation of, of Israel. Now, when you read scripture, John, in the Gospel of John, says that Jesus, when he came to this earth, he tabernacled among us. That's the literal word that is used. He tabernacled among us. And the reason that word is used is so that when we read it, we immediately think about the tabernacle of Moses. And when the tabernacle was built and the presence of God filled that structure, that was a hot spot of God's presence. When Jesus comes, what does he do? He brings the presence of God to earth. Jesus now becomes the hot spot of God's presence on the planet. What does that mean for us? You and I are like little Jesuses. 
When we walk around the world and we go to work and we go home and we go to the gym and we go to the grocery store, it's like Jesus is walking around in all of those places. We are supposed to be a hot spot of God's presence because we are now the temple. The Bible says that God has made his dwelling among us. In fact, you read the rest of the New Testament, you find out this, this idea that we're, we're the presence of God is, is repeated over and over. In fact, in one place it says, we as the church, as individuals within the church, we're being built together, not just as a holy priesthood, but as a temple to the Lord. This is not about buildings. It's about you and I as people. We become the physical representation of God in the world. And as we come together and we gather together and we worship and we serve God, we're making present the kingdom of God in the lives of others. We are the modern temple of God, the dwelling place of his presence. And so there is a, a sacredness to our gatherings, but not just as we come together on Sunday morning. There's a sacredness to our very lives. It's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.15 says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? We're connected to him, we're like him, we're examples of him. And he goes on to say, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Do we go, no, I don't think so. Uh, sounds like might not be a good um, idea. In fact, Paul answers his own question. He says, never, never do that. Like, you are the temple of God. Remember the Hebrew word in our series um, on the Shema, the Hebrew word, nefesh. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, which is the word nefesh. And it doesn't just mean soul. It means your physical body and your spiritual presence, all of that kind of rolled into one. And so what we do in the flesh affects our spirit. And when we grow in the spirit of God, it transforms us on the outside. When we use our bodies for sinful purposes, we're sinning in the very temple, the very presence of, of God. Now, probably most of us right now in this moment are not sinning. Probably. I don't know what you're thinking. Uh, maybe I should have wore pants. I don't know. I don't know what, but probably most of us are not um, sinning in this moment, but how would it change? How would it change how we deal with sin if, if we stop to think, <laughs> um, I'm sinning in the very presence of God. God is right here with me while I'm doing this thing. Um, we, there are things in our lives, probably in my life, that I probably wouldn't do if Jesus was sitting right next to me. And yet Paul says, look, you are the temple of God. You are the presence of God. And so when we use our bodies, which house the presence of God through the Holy Spirit, for sinful purposes, we're sinning in the very temple or presence of God. And that honestly is more than a little terrifying. But the prophets and the priests, they weren't just sinning themselves. God goes on to tell Jeremiah that they were encouraging others to sin. 
The, the prophets in the northern kingdom who worshipped false gods, um, they, they made God angry, right? God was not happy that, that they were um, doing that. But they were speaking for the false gods that they were worshiping, not the God of of the universe. And so there's a little bit of a disconnect there. But when we look at the prophets in Jerusalem and the priests in Jerusalem who were supposed to be speaking on behalf of God, their sin was so much worse. So look at verse 14. You prophets in Jerusalem, you're even worse. You're unfaithful in marriage. You never tell the truth and you even lead others to sin instead of helping them turn back to me. Now, I don't think what he's saying is that you're unfaithful to your spouse. I think what he's saying here is you have committed adultery against me. God is supposed to be our first love. And so they had rejected God like a husband might reject his wife, a wife might reject their husband. And so I think that gets a little bit um, lost, uh, lost there. What I think God was saying was you've committed adultery. You've been unfaithful to me, but they weren't just unfaithful to God. They were unfaithful to their duty to God and by their own actions and inaction, they were encouraging others encouraging others to continue in their sin instead of calling them to repent. So these prophets and priests who were supposed to be directing people to not just worship God, but to look like God, to follow him, to obey him, they were encouraging others to continue in their sin. They weren't stopping them or or, um, pushing them towards repentance. And so um, God continues to uncover the unfaithfulness of the prophets to Jeremiah. He's sharing more. He's like sharing the, the thoughts and the attitudes of these people that, like Jeremiah knows they're, they're not doing the right thing, but he doesn't know their thoughts. And so God is sharing those things um, with him. And then so though God's prophets should have been standing in, in the middle of the road, like waving people down. You've seen a wreck or something in a place you can't really see, and there's somebody like, hey, watch out, you're going to have to turn, you avoid the problem. That's what we're supposed to do. As priests of God, that's what we're called to do, to stand in the road and wave people down and say, look, if you keep going this way, you're going to end up in a lot of, of trouble. It's time to take a detour. It's time to make a U-turn and go the other direction. But the priests and prophets of Jeremiah's day, they weren't doing that. And, and it's not even that they were just like standing on the side of the road watching all these people just go by and continue in their sin. What they actually did was um, set up, uh, I think they're called sag stops. When you have a race, a, a, a marathon or a bike race, they have these tables set up. And so the prophets and the priests, while these people were sinning, they're like handing them protein bars and giving them water and like, Keep going. You can do it. Again, total opposite of what they were supposed to do. In our role as priests of God, we have a difficult message to bring, and we have our own hypocrisy to deal with because we're we're all sinners, right? But the call is to stand in the way of those people who are going the wrong direction, to do our best to turn them around, to point them to Jesus. We all have friends, 
family, other loved ones who are living outside of God's plan and purpose. And the gospel, it, it starts with a hard truth that we are all sinners and we all need God. And while we don't have to stand on the street corner and preach like fire and, and brimstone to, to other people, we can humbly and kindly try to help others see a different path, a, a different perspective, introduce some real hope into their lives. And this means that we have to live faithfully. We have to vulnerably admit our own failings. We have to offer God's grace and hope to those who are convicted by the Holy Spirit and turn to God. That's our role as priests of God. But it also means that we have to look squarely at our own individual and group biases, our own rebellion of God, our own need for repentance. And instead of trying to, to play the Holy Spirit in someone else's, right, like we can get involved in their life, we go, you're doing this wrong and that wrong, you need to stop and turn around and, and get more, and Sarah, you need to read your Bible more often. And <laughs> instead of being that person and playing the Holy Spirit in someone else's life, it's easier to see where others need to repent while we close our eyes to our own sin. And so this is a struggle of the gospel. It's the struggle of living a life after Jesus, recognizing our own failures, our own brokenness, our own hypocrisy, and yet trying to point others in the right direction. It's a struggle. And what bad religion is all about, when religious people forget the gospel is for us all, and it holds us all accountable, not just those outside the church. Sometimes I think we as Christians feel like we come in, I come to church, I, I give, I, I serve, I sing, I clap, um, and then I'm okay, you're not okay. I've got it together, you don't have it together. And so how do we spot a lie when there are so many voices telling us what to do, what's okay, what's not okay? How do we know that the priests and the prophets um, aren't just cheering us on in our sin instead of turning us towards repentance? Well, I gotta tell you that it's not enough to say God told me. And if you're a Christian, you know Christians who use that in their language. Well, God told me to do this. God told me to do that. Um, there have been times, I've been a preacher for 20, I don't know, 25 years or 24 years or something like that. Multiple times um, in those years, people have come to me and said, God told me, told me to do this. And, and it's in direct violation of what God's word says. Like, ah, I just, I don't know, um, I don't know if he did uh, tell you that. Look, look at, at verse 16 in Jeremiah 23. He says, don't listen to the lies of these false prophets, people of Judah. The message they preach is something they imagined. It did not come from me, the Lord all-powerful. So what were they saying? They were saying, they were going to the people and they go, hey, I got a message from God and here it is. And God is going, that didn't come from me. I, you're listening to somebody, but you're not listening to me. I, I don't know uh, where you're getting that information. And so how do we spot a lie in the sea of voices? Well, I think we spot a lie with two questions. And the first question is this, is this what the Bible says? I am so thankful 
that there is a place outside of me that I can go to and, and I can go, here's how I know what's right and what's wrong. Here's how I know what I should do versus what I shouldn't do because God's word tells me. And so if you come to me and you say, well, I don't know what to, what to do. Should I do this or should I do that? Well, we're gonna go to God's word and go, what does God's word say about it? Because God's word is that, is that truth. It's an objective truth outside of us. We don't have to rely on our own judgment or ideas about what is right or wrong. Because guess what? That changes for us over time. What you maybe thought was wrong 10 or 20 years ago, you may not think is wrong today. Or the opposite may happen. You may have thought something when you were young was okay, and now if you've grown and you've learned, you've discovered it's, maybe it's not okay. And so having God's word that we can go back to when we aren't sure what the truth is, is so beneficial to us. We go back to the word and rely on it even though it doesn't agree with us. And that's the cool thing about, about God is that we can go back to his word and, and, and his word doesn't, we can't just use it like, a, like a, 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 a bat to beat people over the head with. We're told that the Bible, the word of God is a two-edged sword. And so it cuts both directions. We gotta be careful when we wield that sword because if you bring it back too fast, it's gonna cut you as well. So we always have the word of God that we can go back to, to find out, uh, is this right or not? Is this the truth or not? The second question I think we gotta ask is, is this how Jesus lived? Is this how Jesus lived? Does this sound like what Jesus would have done or what he did? Is it loving toward God and others? Does it place me first or does it place God first? Like that's really how Jesus lived. He continually stepped aside humility in order to follow God. Let me um, say it this way. I heard this uh, uh, once and I may, I may butcher it, but you'll get the idea. If God always is approving of everything you do, you might not be listening to God. So think about it, soak in for a minute. If everything you do in life, you feel like God is going, hey, that's the way to go, good job. You, you may have to stop and go, am I really listening to God? Like, are the things that I'm doing really so righteous and good that God wouldn't have to go, hey, hey buddy, <laughs> maybe you could pull it back, <laughs> just dial it back a little bit. We do not have to rely on our own spirit or voice or ideas. We as followers of God get to go back to God's word. We get to find either confirmation for the things that we want to do or we've done, or we're gonna find condemnation for, for those ideas. We're gonna find the truth that we then have to apply to our lives. And, and when we do that, we're able to see our own sin and others' sin because we're all judged by the same standard. And that's Jesus. I found this quote from David Platt I thought was good. He says, this word, he's talking about God's word, has the power to bring together God's people. And, and if God's word is not bringing together 
people, God's people, then we need to seriously ask if we're faithfully preaching and leading according to God's word, all of it, the whole counsel of it, not just that which appeals to our preferences and our politics. And that's where things really start to get crazy. Not, the, not the, that which appeals to people like us with preferences like ours that we want to be popular among. When we don't live like this, that's the beginning of bad religion. We're not following God. We're following the, the whims and the ideas of the people in our churches or our friends or our neighbors, our family. David Platt goes on to, to say this, we can't be afraid of losing the crowd. There's a standard of truth that we must, as followers of, of Jesus, go back to. Stand in the street and, 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 and try to turn people back, even if those people that we're turning back are, is ourselves. So look, um, only Jesus died for you and only Jesus can deliver you. So it makes sense that we'd wanna make sure that we were following him and not just our own desires or maybe somebody else's ideas. Our goal is to look more like Jesus, not try and make Jesus or others look like us. And so I, I, I stand up here on Sunday mornings and I, I try to tell you what God's word says, the most truthful and honest way that I can, recognizing that I'm right there with you in the midst of the sins and the struggles and the brokenness and the hurts and the, and the, and the hangups. And so God's word is as much for me as it is for you. We're all in this journey together. And, and since Jesus is the only one who died for us, he's the only one that can deliver us. And so he's the only one we need to worry about. Let's pray. God, thanks for giving us your word. Not just giving us your word, but when we go to John chapter one, we find out that that word, the living word of God, made his dwelling among us and lived in the shell of this human form. And, and what we find in Jesus is a visual example of, of what we read in your word. Jesus did everything exactly the way God, you would want it done. And so we don't just have your word that we can go back to. And I'm thankful that we have that so that it's not just right and wrong isn't just up to me and how I feel in the moment, but it's, it's your decision. It's your truth that matters. But also God, we have the example of Jesus who lived a sinless life doing everything that you wanted him to do. And so we have that example to follow, not just the word, but the word made flesh as well. We thank you for that, God. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for calling us to something better, <laughs> even, even when we're just stuck in the mud of our own sin. There's a call to greater life, to greater understanding, to greater purpose. And so help us, Father, not to rely on our own ideas, our own truth, 
but to go back to your word each and every time um, and go, is this really, is this really the truth? Help us to follow you with all of our heart, with all of our strength, God, with all of ourselves. I ask this in Jesus' name.